good evening, everyone. My name is Tim Besley. I'm the uh, director of the Suntory Toyota International Centers for Economics and Related Disciplines that is supporting this lecture this evening by Adam Posen. Um, I should begin by saying that we're delighted that this evening uh, we have, uh, if I can see her there, uh, Mrs. Yoko Morishima, uh, whose late husband was the founder of Stickard, and we remain eternally grateful to him for his uh, uh, foresight in supporting uh, a research center here at the LSE and uh, getting the initial endowment from uh, uh, two important uh, Japanese companies, uh, Suntory and Toyota. Uh, I also uh, uh, acknowledge the presence of, uh, of Mr. Hayashi from the Japanese Embassy. Very welcome and, and thank you for coming. Um, this evening we're going to have a lecture from Adam Posen, who uh, is going to talk about the realities and, re and relevance of Japan's Great Recession, uh, something which I think is of, of great interest uh, to us in, in, a num in a number of ways. Um, Adam uh, joins up the dots in a number of ways. He's uh, a member of the Monetary Policy Committee, uh, so uh, some contemporary uh, direct interest in these issues from the point of view of what lessons we can learn from the UK for Japan, and that was one of the particular reasons why I was keen to have him come and speak to us this evening. He's also uh, uh, a distinguished economist on a number of topics. I remember reading his uh, work on inflation targeting, very important work early on looking at that issue. Uh, he has a, a, a I, I, I think it's fair to say, a rather peripatetic CV in that he's, uh, he, he, he started off at the Federal Reserve Bank of New York, uh, then moved to Brookings, and among other places also been at the, uh, the Peterson Institute, where I think you remain uh, part-time along with your duties at the, at the MPC. Uh, I, I, on a personal level, I should also uh, point out that Adam is my direct successor as a member of the Monetary Policy Committee, so it's a particular pleasure to, to have him here. Uh, as I said, to begin with, we are very uh, proud at Stickard of our connections to Japan, and it's only occasionally that we can have an event like this that acknowledges that, and I think it's an important event for us intellectually in that sense to acknowledge that our, our roots very much belonged to uh, our links to Japan. And, and, uh, uh, but, but I think Japan takes on, and I'm sure we're gonna, going to learn that through the evening, a particular resonance in view of global events. I think uh, was, I remember some of the earliest discussions that took place uh, in, when I was a policymaker at the beginning of the global crisis. There was a lot of references to Japan. Certainly, I would have to say uh, myself, I was not particularly well tutored in the in, in, in my understanding of that, and I quickly uh, did a bit of reading, among, among which, of course, were Adam's own work. So uh, we're going to hear it this evening from someone who's a true expert on the topic, and he's going to give us his insights on the realities and, and relevance of Japan's Great Recession. Adam, it's a great pleasure to welcome you to the LSE. Thank you all for coming out on a very hot Monday night, and... Uh, you know, it, it really is a big deal for me to be able to give a lecture at the LSE in this room, in this building, and um, there are many generations of scholars who've taught here and studied here who I've been reading, and in particular, I want to thank Tim. Um, he not only was my direct predecessor on the committee, he's been incredibly gracious and welcoming to me since I got to London in helping me get ready to assume my duties. and. Um, I'm honored to share this and other experiences with Tim, but I can really only aspire to his record of public service and academic accomplishment. I do want to say to our honored guests, um, 
I have been the beneficiary of uh, support for my research from Toyota as well as Sony in the past, not Suntory directly. But for that reason, it is, even though my current work is supported by the Ford Foundation, which I gratefully acknowledge, it is a particular pleasure for me to be here at Stickert and have that opportunity. Um, given the prestige of this group and uh, your patience with my hand-waving, um, it would be tempting to give sort of a big academic lecture and sort of try to do a summum, a total comprehensive pulling together of what I've learned and what I've thought about the Japanese economy. Um, but I worry that if I set myself that wide a remit, I will violate everything I was ever taught about public speaking, which is make one or two points, tell people what you're going to tell them, tell them, and tell them what you told them. Um, so I'm going to try to focus in a bit more than that. Uh, what I'm really going to work on is what I'll call one and a half topics. Um, that what really happened when Japan's economic success turned to problems in the 1990s and the relevance of that experience for the advanced economies today, particularly the UK, although I think, I hope, from the basis of my remarks, you'll be able to extend what I'm saying to other countries. You'll have your own little checklist from Adam Posen for what it means to turn Japanese. But so what I'm really going to talk about is that phrase, in a sense. What does it mean for an economy to turn Japanese? And I feel this is indeed topical. We had um, Paul Krugman, uh, St. Paul, as I call him, um, actually write his column just last week on the idea is maybe the U.S. is turning Japanese. So if Paul thinks it's a good idea, it's probably a good topic. And so I'll try to talk about that. Now, in light of the fact that we've had so many asset price bubbles burst, we've had the accumulation of public debt we're all aware of, we've had central banks cutting their instrument interest rates to near zero, at least on the most part, certainly at the Bank of England. Uh, we've had failures, near failures, of systemically important financial institutions. And now we're starting to see some trends, thankfully not in the UK, but elsewhere towards deflation. If anything, the Japanese precedent of what, what happened in the 90s seems to be more important and more relevant than it was even a little bit ago. Um, what I'm going to suggest tonight, I'm afraid, will only be partly reassuring on the question of whether the UK and other economies will get into trouble. My first point is to argue, as I started to argue 10, 12 years ago, but I think subsequent evidence and research has borne out, that Japan's Great Recession wasn't Japan tumbling down a cliff or wasn't one shock happening and then having to get back up. It was a series of mistakes and policy on the financial and macroeconomic side that kept aborting recoveries. And this was demonstrated by the fact that once Japan reversed its policies under Prime Minister Koizumi and BOJ Governor Fukui in the early 2000s, Japan grew impressively well. And I think that's underappreciated, and I'll try to explain why that's so important. The second thing I would note is that there's sort of an irony here that Japan actually had a number of advantages that should have made it better prepared 
to respond to these challenges with policy than perhaps you might have expected. And unfortunately, it didn't take advantage of these. Um, but particularly with respect to fiscal policy, they had a lot more room than the rest of us did. And it's sort of a shame that got squandered. The third point, and this is the most sort of researchy point, but it's one I very genuinely put out here at LSE for the smart people to think about what happens next, is that when you look at what happened in Japan in the 90s, the real aberration from an analytic point of view, the part that was hard to understand, was that once deflation started, it just sort of stayed stuck at a very low level, basically minus 1%, and stayed there for years, even after recovery started. And that's very odd. It's very difficult for us to come up with any economic model that yields that result. It wasn't the growth that was that odd. In fact, if you look, and I'll show you some charts in a moment, the growth in Japan was actually this sort of sawtooth pattern. There were recoveries, and then the government would come and whack them. <laughs> Sound effects, this is great. Come along and whack the economy on the head, and it would go back down. But that's actually comprehensible. So it's really the deflation where things are difficult to understand. And I think this is actually more fundamental than people realize. And this is something I'm hoping to talk about at a future date, so I'm not going to make too much of it. But I know that Charlie Bean, our colleague on the Bank of England and your former professor here at LSE, gave a lecture here at LSE in 06 talking about the flattening Phillips curve here at the home of the Phillips curve. And I think that still remains a very important issue. So getting to the forecasting bit, which I assume is of most interest to some of our friends in the press who were kind enough to come out on a hot night, I think the UK and especially the US are really at very low risk of turning Japanese in the sense that I'm going to describe. They're not going to see repeated recessions caused by policy mistakes. But that doesn't get you off from all risk. Uh, the US still remains very much at risk of deflation. The UK worryingly um, has some parallels to various financial problems that Japan had. I've talked about some of these in the past. And that may, along with the fiscal limitations of the UK, make our recovery weaker than Japan's could have been. Um, the final point, which perhaps is obvious, but again, I feel needs to be made, is that all of us in the US, the UK, Western Europe, are in some sense disadvantaged vis-a-vis -vis Japan in that when Japan came out of its Great Recession, there was a very, and even during it, there was a very buoyant world economy. Uh, essentially, you had a brief recession in their neighbors in 97, 98 during the Asian financial crisis, but US was growing strongly, Europe was growing reasonably, China grew in importance, and Japan was able to export. Now, there's a tendency, particularly for people from Washington, to exaggerate that and suggest that Japan just sort of got out of everything by exporting. And that is a vast exaggeration. But when you have a world where most economies are going to have to move to trying to do net export all at the same time, and in particular where the UK's largest trading partner, by which, of course, I mean the euro area, is in deep trouble, these prospects are not good. So ultimately, my main point is, my main point analytically is I don't want people to think of turning Japanese as some sort of syndrome, some sort of strange condition into which an economy falls. Um, 
I was telling my wife that, who's kindly here tonight, there's, if this was a U.S. audience, there's a TV commercial where um, an older woman falls down. It's a commercial for a medic alert bracelet. And an older woman falls down and like a turtle on her back screams, I've fallen and I can't get up. And it's a very cruel commercial, but you, it's run endlessly on U.S. TV. And so there's this image that the, the Japan's economy was kind of like this older woman. She's fallen and she can't get up. But that isn't what happened. There was a lot more volition, a lot more variation, a lot more change than that was, would imply. In fact, we should think of Japan's Great Recession as largely demonstrating the validity of much textbook economics, mainstream, old-fashioned Keynesian economics even, um, and thus being amenable both to us understanding it and us doing something about it. So, I'm not going to say anybody's going to turn Japanese, but I am going to say we can isolate and talk about specific parallels and specific kinds of references that are relevant for today. And so the sense of exoticism that people often have about the Japanese economy, which is held by Japanese scholars sometimes as much as by Western scholars because it's the sense of differentiation, of individuation, is as misleading now as it was back in the 80s in the glory days of Japan. So that's my telling you what I'm going to tell you, and now I'll tell you it. Um, I will suggest, though, that there, I am in this lecture, um, and particularly in this hall, I want to admit my inspiration by the legendary Japanese film director Akira Kurosawa. Um, Kurosawa was known in Japan, and was somewhat controversial in early post-war Japan, for bringing Western motifs and cinematic influences into Japanese film, and then in turn his films affected Western filmmaking. There would be no Star Wars if there wasn't a hidden fortress, for example. Um, and the reason I bring this up, and in the printed version of my speech I have a quote, Kurosawa was once quoted as saying, human beings share the same common problems. A film can only be understood if it depicts these properly. And so in essence, that's one of the points I've always tried to make about understanding the Japanese economy, which is less of a contentious point than it was when I first started making this some 12 or 13 years ago, that these are common problems and these are common issues and a more universal approach can take care of it. So, let me start off by suggesting that the first thing to think about is Kurosawa's great film, Ron. Now, again, you're not going to be quizzed on this. Um, for those of you who haven't seen Ron, uh, Ron is basically a retelling of King Lear in a Japanese feudal context. And like Lear, to sound like an economist, what happens at the start of the film is that the old monarch makes a really bad allocation of his assets. And he decides to give control of his assets to a manager who's less than trustworthy and he doesn't really want to exercise proper oversight. This may sound familiar to some of you who've been working in the city the last few years. And the result of this bad choice, just as with Goneril and Regan back in King Lear, 
is an inevitable progression. You've, you've blown it with this, this one allocation of your power, of your wealth, and then it's just straight downhill from there to dispossession, war, destruction, death, you name it. And sometimes, the reason I raise this up, is that, raise this point, is that sometimes people seem to feel that Japan's, or characterize Japan's Great Recession as kind of like Ron or King Lear. There was this one big mistake. There was the bubble of 88, 89. Or for certain people, there was the Bank of Japan being too lax in responding to the bubble before 1988, 89. And once that happened, poof, Alea Yakta S, the die is cast, and off you go on your 10 years of misery. And it's true that you can look at the huge bubbles that built up in Japan, the leverage, the, the corporate balance sheets getting into trouble, the fragility of banks, and you can do more sophisticated ways of looking at this. But there are also people who will come out, and I in fact got an email from a colleague today who apparently hasn't been reading me and asserted this silly thing, that Japan was due for a structural decline. That Japan's economy was suited for wonderful catch-up in the 60s, 70s, and 80s and couldn't make the transition to being on the technological frontier or had terrible ways of allocating its own resources like King and Ron and just couldn't fix it. There are others who tend to argue some form of demographic determinism that as many of us are aware, the average age in Japan is very high, is rising, very few children are being born, and that this older society, this aging society, inherently would not be flexible enough and was on the path to destruction. What all of these share, and which you can hear of in some of the echoes talking about the UK or the US today, is the idea that once the bubble comes, once the bad choices are made, boom, there's very little you can do about it. Now, like Lear and Ron, this is a very compelling narrative to think about, to ponder the folly of those who believe too much in the present and their power to see the future. It's very Reinhardt Rogoff kind of thing. However appealing this is from an ethical perspective, it is a complete failure to explain the facts of what really happened in Japan. And so one point, as I put it in a paper I did back in 2004, it takes more than a bubble to become Japan. So let's me put up a chart. And essentially, this one picture tells it all. This is just a plot of quarterly GDP. And I'm grateful to Neil Meads, who works with me now, who used to work with him, uh, for helping me put together the charts for this lecture and some underlying research as well, but we'll get to that. And obviously, back in the boom years around 1990, you had this incredible growth rate that was unsustainable. Then you have a stock market crash, and you have this brief recession around 1992 that you know, essentially was inevitable. If you're growing too fast, there should be some pullback. But as you'll notice, the Japanese economy actually recovers up to a 4% annualized growth rate before getting whacked down. And that, by the way, that whacking is the raising of the consumption tax by the Japanese government, the VAT, in 1997, along with some insufficient efforts by the Bank of Japan. And then the economy starts to recover again, and then they get whacked again 
And the second whack was the Bank of Japan making noises about raising interest rates and the financial system having been neglected for so long it really became a sharp constraint on growth. But anyway, the basic point is Japan had a natural tendency to recover. Most economies have a natural t market economies, not Zimbabwe, have some natural tendency to recover. And these recoveries may not have been enormous catch-up, but they're not paltry either. I mean, these are average annualized growth rates of 2% or more, which for a country with an aged population at the technological frontier not playing catch-up is a pretty good rate. This is actually in line with, if you look at a number of countries who've had financial crises, what tends to happen is they don't get huge catch-up growth, but they tend to have return to their pre-crisis trend, and that's what we see. More importantly, perhaps, none of these recoveries are in some sense artificial. There is this very long-standing myth that I think I finally successfully killed, if the editorials and The Economist are anything to go by, that Japan lived off of huge government spending packages in the 90s. And, the f and if you analyze this properly, that's actually not true. And I'll come back to that. But this isn't all export growth. This isn't all government spending. There's some real investment and, and consumption, private sector activity in there. And so if you take these numbers, and so this is, I've split the time series in half. This takes the first half of the time series. And these little colored bars, for those of you who aren't into this, they'll be completely incomprehensible, but let me try. Essentially what they do is they stack at each period in time the various components of GDP. So gold is net exports, dark blue is private consumption, public investment is green, and if you add up their various contributions, the ones above the line positive, the ones below the line negative, you get the dot on the black line. This shows you the path of growth. Now, you can get much fancier about this, but I'll just point out a couple things. First is, you can see the purple in the early part of the 90s, what happens in the recession following the bubble bursting is a collapse in private investment. As we say in economics, well, duh. You know, that is what you would expect following a bubble. But then the economy comes back, and you can see private consumption, dark blue is a big part of it. And there is some public investment spending around 94, 95, but it rapidly goes back into deficit or rather, excuse me, not into deficit, but I mean into contraction. If you look to the right, there are these periods alternating between positive green bars and negative green bars. In other words, it's not unremitting spend, 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 spend. And what Ken Kuttner of Williams College and I did in this couple of papers was look at this more analytically in a vector autoregression framework. You know, we could go into those details if you're interested. But essentially, if you control more properly for what else is going on at the time, and you allow for the fact that when growth goes down, tax revenues go down, it, the picture gets even clearer. That GDP is not being driven by public spending in this period. Now, if we go to the second half of this time series, the picture is even more clear. You can see the green public investment is basically being withdrawn throughout the entire last decade. And it is mostly private investment, those purple bars and net exports, non-trivially but not solely, that are driving growth. 
Japan is suddenly in the 2000s back to sustainable growth. And so this idea that Japan somehow was doomed because of the bubble, was doomed because of demographics, was doomed because of its structural problems is just on the face wrong. Now you could argue there was something that got worked off over that period and I'll get back to why that's false. But the main point is Japan recovered despite fiscal contraction. Now, if we look a little more closely at the public spending, you can see again this just breaks out just those two bars. There were brief periods of stimulus and there were periods of sharp contraction and as it so happens, the period of sharp contraction tends to correlate pretty well with the periods of recession until you get to the 2000s when you have a sustainable private sector recovery. So if we look at the last part of this period of Japan's Great Recession, which actually, remember, is not that great. It's a series of recoveries that get aborted. I've already just asserted, and the references are in the speech online, that by then the banking problems have become too big to ignore. So Japan did have banking problems, much like the US has, much like the UK has and had, starting with the bubble. But initially they were relatively small compared to GDP. And initially, supervisors, as is their want, um, engaged in what's called forbearance. They let the banks keep open even if they had weakened capital in hopes that growth would come back and their balance sheets would improve. And they let them keep rolling over loans to bad companies with the idea then they wouldn't foreclose on these companies. Anyway, that is a recipe for taking a small banking problem and making it a large banking problem. That is precisely what happened with the US savings and loan crisis in the 80s. I edited a volume we put out in 2000 looking at that comparison. Uh, Anil Kashyap from UChicago and Takeo Hoshi from UC San Diego have done incredible work on this. There's a lot of stuff out there. But essentially that's your story. So at some point Japan lets the banking crisis get out of hand. And um, around 2001 a man named Heizo Takanaka is appointed financial services minister by Prime Minister Koizumi and I won't take any credit for this but he ends up applying the policy prescriptions that people like me had been advocating. And they recapitalize the banks and they're very tough with the banks and you can see the moment the regulators kick in, non-performing loans drop off. And they drop off much more for the major banks first because of course the major banks are the first ones to get inspected and recapitalized. It doesn't sequence exactly with GDP growth. It's actually regulatory policy intervention that matters. Now, the main point that underlies this, all this growth, and I'm talking about private sector growth, is that Japan was actually very productive. And this has been completely overlooked in recent years. These are time plots. It's very messy. I hate putting five lines on a graph, but that's life. These are the G5, the major five advanced economies, UK, US, Germany, France, Japan. And this just plots over time their annual growth rates in TFP total factor productivity. Again, I assume most people in this building in this audience know that, but that's, that's essentially the rate of technological progress. That's, that's how much more stuff you can put out with a given amount of resources. This is what Robert Solo was famous for developing, the idea of TFP. 
and it's not very well measured, but to the degree we can measure it, we have this. Now, I had argued, and here I do have to take a little bit of credit, I had argued much earlier than anybody else that Japan's potential rate of growth, its underlying productivity trend, was not being horribly constrained by the recession. In a sense, this is logically consistent, right? If I'm arguing that the recession is fundamentally a demand recession, not a real business cycle, not a negative productivity shock, and the recession is punctuated by recoveries, then it makes sense that the under, it's, or at least it's consistent, that the underlying growth trend wouldn't be affected very much. At the time, this was very contentious because there were people in the government of Japan, in the Bank of Japan, who were very strongly arguing that Japanese potential growth was much lower, had dropped even in advance of the bubble, had dropped. So I mean, we're talking about very big numbers here. I was arguing and continued to argue that potential growth in Japan was something upwards from 2.0% a year. And the Economic Planning Agency in Japan at one point was arguing that potential growth in Japan was 0.5% a year. And as Tim can tell you, if you're sitting on a central bank and you think growth on average has to be 0.5 instead of 2.0, you're going to be much more likely to step on the brakes or you're going to be much less likely to worry about pumping up the economy than you are if you think it's 2.0. Similarly, if you're an official at the Ministry of Finance and you're worried about tax revenues, if you think the economy is going to be growing at 2.0% for the next 40 years, you have one set of budget projections and if you think your economy is going to be growing at 0.5% for the next 40 years, you have a very different and much more depressing set of budget projections. So this colored the whole debate. Anyway, I argued from a micro perspective that there were various improvements being made, not just this macro top-down view that nothing had happened, but that micro improvements were being made in Japan, that women, still to a shockingly large degree were underutilized, but were increasingly being utilized in the workforce beyond simply being office ladies or forced out of work at age 30. Uh, telecoms under US pressure were heavily deregulated over the 90s. Energy markets were very strongly deregulated over the 90s, liberalized. Um, retail got additional competition in part because you had cheap production clothes and things from China and finally some entrepreneurs in Japan allowed to bring that in. You had a whole bunch of things going on and you even had some, and I realize this is, sounds a bit odd when talking about financial fragility, you had some useful restructuring of the, and liberalization of the financial markets. That in fact you could argue was part of what caused the crisis was because the liberalization wasn't managed very smoothly, but that's another story for another time. So you put together this micro perspective with the macro perspective and you would become convinced, as I was, that Japan could continue to grow strongly and therefore it was right and reasonable for policy to try to get Japan back to that growth level. Um, let me illustrate that another way and then I'll move on. As Neil can attest, I'm sort of known now in the bank for Adam's left arm principle. Adam's left arm principle is the people of Japan in 1992, just as the people of the UK in 2008, didn't wake up one day and find all their left arms were missing. 
there was nothing overnight that destroyed the productive capacity of the economy. Japan knows what it's like to have productive capacity destroyed. Go back and look at the photos of 1945. That wasn't what was happening here. So what I argued at the time, and I was not alone in this, there were people at the IMF, there were others out there who were arguing this point of view. Paul Krugman at a theoretical level was certainly out there arguing this point of view, was that there was a list that could achieve Japanese recovery. It required some cleanup and recapitalization of the banks. It required some further loosening of monetary policy, meaning unconventional measures, since interest rates were already at zero, but that wasn't doing it. And it required fiscal policy to be less subject to these tightening shocks that we saw in a previous graph. Now, that's not a simple list, but neither is it obviously an impossible list. It's all things the government controls. It's all things that are demand-oriented, not about arbitrary supply-side issues. And what happened was Koizumi and Takanaka and Fukui and the people associated with them came in in the early 2000s, and they essentially implemented that policy list. And boom, that's when you get the growth. So you get a recovery from 2002 until the global um, collapse of mid-2008 that is the longest unbroken recovery in Japanese post-war history, even longer than the great growth periods in the 40s and 50s. And so if we, I left you a long time with that chart, sorry, I'll give you a new one. This is, instead of just looking at the time series, we take the averages. And what Neil and I have done is we've taken GDP per worker. Okay, this is growth rate of GDP per worker. Why per worker? Because obviously in the US, if you're adding several hundred thousand people to the workforce every year, that gives you growth, but it doesn't give you necessarily productivity growth. It doesn't give you wealth per capita. In Japan, the workforce is slightly declining, so you want to control for that. And then the light purple bars are this TFP. And what you find is that over the most of the last decade, including notably the years of the boom in the UK and the US, Japan was growing faster on average per worker, and Japan was growing much, much more through productivity growth than these other countries. Now, TFP, as I've mentioned, has its problems, but this is as good as, I mean, we're just taking the data from the standard national databases. It's, we can double check with the conference board. And this is, and those are very big gaps. You know, 0.4% TFP growth versus 1.2% TFP growth. So what does that tell you? The recovery was no simple sopping up of idle resources. This might even give some hope to those European Euro area countries that are being told, do some structural reforms, that structural reforms might actually pay off a reasonable amount in the short run. But most of all, building on some work I did in 2002, the rate of technological innovation in Japan, the productive capacity, was unchanged. So I have belabored this point, and I'm sorry to have belabored this point, but for a policymaker, particularly a monetary policymaker, but I think for all macroeconomic policymakers, having some sense of what you think is potential growth and having some sense of where your growth comes from is key. Now, 
I've said that because it was a demand-side recession, nothing much could happen to the structural capacity. That is a bit misleading. If you do have a recession and people become unemployed and it takes them a long time to find work again, or they have to try to find work in industries that are completely different than the industries they used to work in, their human capital erodes. There is some waste, there is some loss. If you have a, fra a fragmented or, or fragile financial sector, I should say, there will tend to be rolling over bad debts to old companies hoping that they don't fully default, while new companies at the margin tend to have a harder time getting capital. But the thing about these effects are these are effects that should take time to accumulate. These are effects that occur after you've been in recession for a while. And this is why, I won't put words in Tim's mouth, but this is why a number of central bankers, myself included, have argued why you want to do stimulus right when a, when a crisis occurs, why you want to hit it with fiscal policy, why you want to hit it with aggressive monetary policy, because you want to stop this dynamic from getting into place. I mean, there are other reasons as well, but that's a very fundamental reason. If you can get the recovery, if you can put a floor under things quickly, these erosions of human capital, of physical capital, of financial capital tend to be diminished. It is impossible to completely offset these kinds of negative effects. And for reasons I'll discuss a little later, um, these effects are unfortunately more likely to show up in the UK today than they were in Japan in the 90s. Not horribly so, but yes. So, first point, this is not Ron. This is not Japan had its bubble or had its structural problem and was doomed. This was all avoidable except for the short initial recession and the kind of recovery that Japan experienced was consistent with that. And once policy got out of the way of these recoveries, the Japanese economy recovers. And I think that's an important message that goes with the lessons that a number of economies and governments have taken in recent years about aggressive policy action, about not assuming that if there's a downturn, it has to be structural. Now, that in a sense is the good news. So let me turn to the slightly less good news. The second film of Kurosawa's I'd like to feature for you is the famous Rashomon. Now, many people who haven't seen Rashomon have probably heard of what's called the Rashomon effect. Rashomon is a film that was very groundbreaking at the time. Kurosawa essentially gave four different points of view in one film on the same incident. Three filmed from the point of view of the participants. It happened to be a violent incident for the purposes of the film, but anyway. Three filmed by the participants in the incident, and one filmed as though by an objective narrator, you know, godlike voice. And Rashomon has become a code word, or the Rashomon effect has become a code word for when humans can't agree on what happened. So there's a car accident and you know, four different people say different, the one person's car and the other person's car and two witnesses all say different things. Legal scholars will refer to a Rashomon effect. And sociologists and particularly anthropologists love invoking the Rashomon effect. Now obviously this is a very real human tendency I think we're all aware of. But as I speak to an academic audience here at LSE, this is something we try to get away from. 
that's not to say economics is a science. Uh, if you had any hopes on that part, I would assume the last two years should have talked you out of that. Um, but the idea that in macroeconomics we can try to do empirical work, try to have some common set of standards and arguments, and try to eventually over time accumulate you know, agreed upon results is I think the aspiration we should have. And if we're going to get anything out of policy, that's where we should be. And so what I argued, and then Ken Kuttner and I argued, it, on our interpretation, what was striking about the Japanese experience in the 90s was not so much Rashomon, it was the opposite. It was that so many things seemed to follow exactly the textbook. I already talked about some of that. And so you could talk about certain specifics having to do with Japan, it being very large, it being not very open in economy to global capital and trade. Um, it being facing a very large shock. And these obviously conditioned your textbook response, but they conditioned them in very predictable ways. And so it's been a source of great frustration to me over the last couple of years to listen to the hue and cry now in the Euro area, but particularly in the US in 2008, 2009, over the so-called stimulus package, o over fiscal policy. Um, I mean, this genuinely seems to be a Rashomon effect. If you go back to where I, I, I sit when I'm in Washington, which is only one week out of every six or eight, but if you go back to the institute I work in Washington, you, know, you can come into our institute and ask somebody about fiscal policy, and they'll give you one answer, preferably the right one. And then you can go across the street to Brookings, and the fiscal policy experts there will give you a different answer. And then you go around the corner to the American Enterprise Institute, and they will give you a different answer, and so on. And it really shouldn't be like this. Fiscal policy works when it's tried. And if anything, the Japanese experience shows us that the short-run effects of fiscal policy are very much as the textbook would predict. Yes, obviously, fiscal policy doesn't always work the same in all circumstances. If you start off in a country with a very high debt level, you start off in a country that's tiny, it's very different. But your textbook's second half of the chapter can tell you that. There's really no good evidence of many things that are mooted about fiscal policy, and yet people insist on acting as though this is a matter of opinion and debate, and it really surprises me. So I'm going to read a quote from Kuttner and I did a paper. Ken, Ken's my very good friend and co-author, so, but he's only to blame for the specific parts I mentioned about him. Um, did a paper specifically on the effectiveness of fiscal policy in Japan. And I'm just going to read a brief quote from that, because I worked hard to write it, so it must be good. Um, our results provide little support for the Ricardian equivalent hypothesis. That's the idea that fiscal policy is going to be ineffective because people know, oh my god, if they, if they give us money now, they're just going to tax it back later or cut government spending later, so I might as well just save. And if I save, then that offsets the fiscal policy and I don't have to worry about it. That's what Ricardian equivalence is about. Anyway. Our results provide little support for the Ricardian equivalent equivalence hypothesis under perhaps the most propitious conditions ever seen for it to hold. A rapid and large increase in the public debt, contemporaneous with a widely publicized projection of the demographic dangers to social security benefits in an economy already prone to high rates of saving. Our examination of the effects of fiscal policy in Japan in the 1990s has taken us on what seems to be a tour of macroeconomics past. When economies were closed, savers were myopic, 
and consequently fiscal stabilization is effective. In other words, if Ricardian equivalence, if the ineffectiveness of fiscal policy because of an aging society, because of mounting debt, was ever going to kick in anywhere, it should have kicked in in Japan in the late 90s. And we find exactly the opposite. On the other hand, if the textbook old-fashioned ways of looking at fiscal policy are right, a closed economy, a big economy, should have much bigger fiscal effects from policy than other countries, and that is exactly what we found. And it's not just us. There's a distinguished Japanese economist, Charles Horioka, who wrote a series of papers arguing that Japan's savings rate would just decline over time as the society aged. And it turns out, despite all the talk about Japanese saving, this is, I didn't, I decided not to put that slide in, sorry. Well, follow my hand. This is the Japanese household savings rate over the last 20 years. Which is absolutely right. In a really important paper, Christian Broda of UChicago and David Weinstein of Columbia, David is one of the major figures in Japan studies in addition to all his other work, um, did a paper in which they looked at the debt position of the Japanese government and they found that, gee, net debt in Japan was actually much lower than gross debt because there were all these weird I mean, it was, it's just a nightmare, and they actually read Japanese and went through the data, and even Japanese officials can't always explain it. All these back and forth bits of money owed from one part of the Japanese government to another part to a quango, that's the British word for it, I don't know what the Japanese word for it is. Anyway, back and forth, and by the time you net all that out, net debt was about half what gross debt is. And why is that important? Because that, again, helps to explain why you never saw interest rates go up as much in Japan as we would have thought when you do these huge projections of what debt looks like. Look, this is not an endorsement of a blank check for fiscal policy anywhere, everywhere, every time. Okay? In Japan, fiscal policy worked because as Ministry of Finance bureaucrats used to brag to me, and they turned out to be right, whatever we do, Japanese savers will keep their money at home. And that remains true. It also is a fact that Japan, like the U.S., has a very low share of public sector in GDP, a relatively low share of taxes in GDP, and therefore, if it turns out you have to expand the public sector, you have to expand the tax, and you have to increase taxes, it's much less distortionary than if you're the U.K. and you already have a public sector that's 50 percent of GDP and taxes to go with it. If you look around the world today, only the U.S. looks like Japan on these scores. Only the U.S. can thus afford to keep on going with fiscal stimulus for a long time. And given the fact that U.S. savers, while stupid, are a little less passive than Japanese, the rope is not limitless. At some point, money would leave. For smaller, more open economies, especially those with larger state sectors, and the U.K. obviously fits this, Yes, this is the closest I come to actual policy stuff tonight. Get excited. Um, if the UK fits this, the news is not as good. There is leakage of fiscal policy abroad, so when the previous government did stimulus, which I fully supported, I at least and most of us expected that it would be much less effective than, say, in the US, and it was. Because we're an open economy, money gets spent abroad. 
that was why there was an international effort to try to get everybody doing fiscal stimulus at once, because then what comes abroad is offset by others abroad spending it. But the point is, it just wasn't going to be as effective on its own. Similarly, we do thankfully have enormous credibility. The UK has never defaulted on its debt for hundreds of years, and low interest rates reflect this. But we don't have captive national savings equivalent to 200% of GDP like Japan. At some point, interest rates do kick in. And so a recent paper by Pier Carlo Padoan, who is the chief economist of the OECD, shows some estimates of, this, of these kinds of effects, and it shows up exactly as you would expect. The bigger economies, the more closed economies, had more effective fiscal policy, had more room to run with it. And so while I was on record advocating fiscal stimulus in Japan, advocating fiscal stimulus in the US, I do have to draw the line here in the UK. Essentially, the three parties that ran for office were right to say we were going to hit an age of austerity. And I'll come back to that. Now, monetary policy, the other big ticket item, is another place where we've tried with research to get past what I'll call the Rashomon effect. And we've had more success in getting agreement here than in fiscal policy. I'm not going to go through it all, but essentially there's a vast literature out there of people doing different ways of estimating central bank reaction functions, and essentially every one of them says the Bank of Japan was too slow to cut rates in the 90s once the crisis hit, and there were other things they could have done once the interest rates hit zero, and they didn't. Um, to give you one example, this is a, from a paper by Harrigan and Kuttner. I, I did a little advice on, and they essentially said, okay, the red line is the path of the actual interest rate uh, uh, controlled by the Central Bank of Japan. The starred red line is what, based on previous Bank of Japan behavior, you would have expected. And in fact, even in the crisis, Bank of Japan was less aggressive about cutting rates on this estimate than they would have been in the past. And then the green dotted line, which by the way was estimated several years ago, so before we had recent events on which to draw, says how the Fed would have reacted in a similar circumstance and they would have gotten to zero much faster. Now, again, these are results that are ro not that robust to various assumptions, but there is a vast range of papers by Japanese scholars, by American scholars, that establish this. Does it matter? Well, then you get into the thing that does sort of look like turning Japanese, the deflation trap. Um, and you get a situation, these are three different measures of inflation in Japan, and what you can see is, except for this brief spike in 1997, again like the Bank of England, they had to face a VAT rise. That's the spike around 97. It did all kinds of great things. Um, and then inflation is negative, basically, until the recovery is well underway, and the only one that goes up quickly is the corporate or the wholesale price index, which is most subject to international factors. Um, so this is not good. Now, this is also where Rashomon gets its revenge on us. Because we can all agree this is the facts, and none of us, I think, have a good answer for why it is this way. Um, in the second half, as you can see by the dotted lines Neil kindly put in, 
There was a period where quantitative easing was undertaken by the Bank of Japan, much like we've done here by the UK, and I'll show a chart about that. And it was massive, and it still didn't raise the inflation rate. If you take any sort of normal Phillips curve and you put in even very optimistic estimates of potential output like mine, let alone more pessimistic ones that were common, you can't get this result. You would very quickly be back to growth, back to inflation, because you'd be growing too fast for the sustainable rate of the economy. On the other hand, if you assume whatever output gap you need to get you something that looks like this, then in our standard models, it's very hard to explain why inflation remains basically flat for so long. Why doesn't it get worse over time? Why doesn't it accelerate? So there really is something funny going on here, and I encourage those of you who are so inclined to think about research on this, because I genuinely would like to know what the answer is. But just to go back to policy for a moment, this light blue line shows what happened to narrow money, the kind of money that a central bank controls by buying things and printing money in Japan. And you know, starting with what we call the start of quantitative easing, they are at the zero mark. Japan did you know 40% growth in the money stock, narrow money stock. That usually, according to monetarists, should make a big difference. But if you look at the dark blue line, that's broad money, total nominal growth in the economy, essentially, and you get nothing. Econometric investigations, and I have a whole list of references in the paper to people like Baba and Ueda and others in Japan, as well as Bernanke, who did some work on this. You get the, you get the idea that the main effect of quantitative easing wasn't through this channel because the banking system was in trouble. It was instead through expectations. It was seen as a sign of commitment from the Bank of Japan that they would try to get the inflation rate up. And that had some anchoring effect. And I would have argued that something similar is at work in the UK. Now, colleagues of mine at the Bank of England, where we've been doing quantitative easing, are obviously a little more enamored of it than I am. But so if you look here, the UK is the light gold line. Starting before I joined the committee under Tim, um, the Bank of England started printing its money and buying bonds. And it was much, use the left axis, it was a much faster, much more aggressive response than the Bank of Japan once we hit zero interest rates, which I think was right. But unfortunately, we still haven't seen much difference in the purple line in broad money growth. Um, now, this is partly misleading because there's a strong argument for why we buy different, we the Bank of England buy different things from counterparties, different counterparties than the Bank of Japan did, and therefore we should use a slightly different measure of money growth, but on this scale of chart, you, you wouldn't be able to see the difference. More importantly, I mean, unlike this chart, the previous chart, we do have some positive inflation in the UK. We are not tipping towards deflation. And ultimately, the proof is in the pudding. We've done something right. Now, we may not have done it perfectly right and that we're overshooting our target at the moment. But as I've said several times over the last week, I don't believe we can control these things that well, especially when we're relying on quantitative easing. And I'd rather temporarily be missing the target by 1% or so on the upside than by facing deflation. Doesn't mean we're not going to worry about inflation, but it means you know, don't, don't assume we can perfectly guide things. I think that was one of the mistakes of the 90s and the 2000s as we thought we could. But anyway, the upshot of all this 
is that there's a lot of research to be done thinking about the transmission mechanism, thinking about whether these broad money measures really measure what's going on in the economy properly, and asking whether, in part, Japan seemed to have better growth and less inflation, while we're getting more inflation and less growth, has something to do not so much with the monetary regime, but how the banking system's done, or some other alternative hypothesis. It's also worth noting that deflation didn't turn out to be as costly in Japan as we all would have thought it was. It clearly didn't help matters. And if their interest rates on their public debt was any bit higher, deflation would make things miserable. Those of you following the Greek situation have all seen the calculations that if you have deflation instead of inflation, your real debt goes up pretty fast. But, you know, eight, ten years of sustained deflation was not a disaster. Remember, there was TFP growth. There was real growth in Japan. So that's something else worth thinking about. But the main point, which I already suggested, the other lesson, I should say, not the main point, is for me as a central banker, we have to have a lot more humility than central bankers had in the glory days of the early 2000s, especially when we're mucking around with unconventional measures. It's not easy to get rid of deflation once it starts. It's not easy to target a specific rate of inflation when you've got a messed up financial system. We're not sure why deflation looks the way it does in Japan. That doesn't mean we don't know some basic things. We do know what the sign is on quantitative easing. It helps. We do know the difference between inflation at a 3% rate and a 10% rate or a minus 3% rate. But if ever there was an injunction against fine-tuning by central bankers, this would be it. Coming to a close, Tim had asked me to go up to an hour, which I didn't think I would do, but it turns out I did. Aren't you lucky? Um, so I've talked a lot about film. Let me talk now about what I'll call a partial remake. Um, if you're remaking the film of the Japanese Great Recession for the UK and the today, what does it look like? And as I said, Kurosawa was very big on doing remakes, and then people did remakes of his films. Um, so clearly one piece that doesn't carry over is that the UK policymakers throughout the West were much more aggressive about responding to the initial shock with monetary and fiscal policy than Japan was. And so the idea that our economy would turn Japanese in that sense is, through policy mistakes is just not relevant. But are there other things you might have? And if I was there doing the pitch meeting for this particular movie, I might talk about there being a very ironic twist, that maybe this UK remake might actually be scarier than the original, especially since when I take you through the original, the original isn't as bad as you might have thought it was. Now, why might it be scarier? Well, I'm going to talk about a few advantages Japan had versus the UK, some of which I've already previewed, but I want to make sure I get them across. And then a couple similarities that are rather disturbing as well. I mean, the first set of advantages we've already spoken about is the idea that simply Japan had more room to run with fiscal policy, but also with monetary policy. It's a closed, large economy with vast, passive national savings. Openness is generally a good thing. But when you're doing macroeconomic management in the face of a shock, being open, being indebted abroad does constrain you. So when we go forward and we do see this age of austerity coming here in, in the UK as opposed to 
Abraham. The cutbacks in fiscal spending and in rises in taxes may not be as damaging as some of us worry they are because just as there was a lower multiplier when we used them, there's also a lower multiplier on the way back. That said, it's still going to be painful beyond the direct human effects of whatever government services ha get cut or whatever people lose their jobs. And we shouldn't delude ourselves that there's going to be some huge reward in terms of interest rates or something for the UK by doing this. This is all about preempting a bad outcome. This is about preempting a sovereign debt crisis, preempting a rise in interest rates that would be worse than doing this. But it's not like given where interest rates are in the UK right now that they're going to drop lower when we do this. Okay? So it's the right thing to do. It may not be as painful as we might fear, but it is going to hurt and it's only better than the alternative. It's not going to make our lives great. The second difference from Japan is that for all the talk about structural problems in Japan, the UK and the US and a few other countries face a problem Japan didn't. Japan had hugely competitive and still has hugely competitive export industries. Leaving aside Toyota's temporary problems, um, you know, they are the world beaters in autos and electronics and many issues, many sectors, excuse me. And so while they eventually had to reallocate some people domestically from these, from the inefficient sectors like construction, like healthcare, like um, food production in Japan is very inefficient. The UK, the US, we got to take people who were employed in the city and figure out something useful to do with them. That's hard. Um, being less facetious, it is reasonable to assume our major export of financial services has suffered a sectoral setback. That the demand for financial services is probably unlikely to grow at the rate it had been growing. That it may, grow, may even shrink. And that the UK share of those financial services may shrink. And thus, if we're going to have net exports, we have to reallocate labor and capital to some other sector. Now the UK does have one of the most flexible economies in the world, so I'm not going to overstate this challenge. And looking at the most recent data, if you look at the survey data the CBI puts out, for example, it's, as well as the stuff the agents for the bank do in our regional work, you know, there's a lot of evidence that manufacturing is picking up, that people are getting orders, that people are confident. All that said and done, net exports haven't come back yet. And they haven't come back despite a very large decline in sterling previously. And maybe the sectoral reallocation is part of the explanation. And that means even if you have a growing world environment, we may be less able to take advantage of it than Japan did. The third place, which I already mentioned, so I'll just repeat because it's important, is we are not facing a growing world economy in the same sense Japan was back in the 90s. China is growing, Australia is growing, the world economy on average is growing, but the people with whom we trade are not growing. And importantly, many economies which were running repeated trade deficits also now have to try to move into surplus for financial reasons. So just to put up a couple charts, if you look at Japan over the last 10 plus years, Increasingly, they're doing trade 
with mainland China. Their trade with Asia stayed stable. The share of trade with the U.S. has gone down. You know, huge growth there. And obviously China's importance as an export market goes up for them. At the same time, China is going from strength to strength. If we look at the U.K., 50% of our exports go to the 16 countries of the Euro area. 15% go to the U.S. A very small fraction go to China. And again, without wanting to get into it, let us just say the prospects for strong growth and imports in the euro area over the next few years are likely to be curtailed. It's also extremely unlikely that while parts of the euro area will be undergoing deflation, as seems to be in prospect, that UK prices and wages, God willing, will be going down vis-a-vis -vis the euro area. So you put all that together, this is not insurmountable. We can start exporting to China, but this is another reason to think that we may not get the kind of recovery Japan got. Almost done. Two other parallels, not differences, but parallels between Japan and the UK that are worth mentioning. Now one is something I brought up in a speech last October. There are a few kind souls here who were at that event as well, not just my wife and Sally and Neil. Um, and at the time, based on research we did, I pointed out that like Japan, there were very few channels to get finance to non-financial corporations in the UK if your main banks broke down. So we have this idea of the city being incredibly important and efficient, but in terms of providing finance for domestic non-financial business, it's not that great. And there's actually a long historical legacy of people talking about this, and I talk about that in my October speech, but essentially just taking a chart from my October speech, there are a bunch of ways in which, while the UK has a good stock market, very low level of bond market development, very low level of commercial paper and short-term securities development, very concentrated banking sector. And so what this means is if we have only four banks plus one, um, what do you call it? What do you call nationwide? Mutual society. society? Building society, thank you. you know, four banks plus one building society doing the bulk of all lending in this, in this economy, and two of them are nationalized and presumably still fragile. This is not a good situation. By contrast, the U.S., partly through sheer luck, has much less concentrated banking system, even though they have very problematic big banks has a much more developed commercial paper market. It's much easier for relatively small companies to get access to the bond market. And as a result, they are less constrained in their recovery. The other parallel, which relates to some work that Neil and I have just started doing, is what's going on with businesses. Now, this is a, a standard chart we actually use at the MPC, usually with UK data, but here's with Japanese data. And this talks about the financial balances of various sectors of the economy. And above zero means you've got positive assets, below zero means you've got negative assets. And you can see that the government runs a very big decline in its assets and then comes back up. The external balance stays relatively flat in terms of the net foreign asset position of Japan. That's not the trade balance, by the way. This is a stock. This isn't a flow. Had to get that phrase in here somewhere if I'm at the LSC. The key point is the dark blue line. Starting late in the recession and right through the recovery, and then again bounding back up in the most recent times, there are very, very large corporate savings. 
companies are just putting away huge amounts of cash. And this is not completely unprecedented, but this degree and this persistence is actually relatively unusual, as far as we can tell from looking at the data. Now, two points. First, this gives the lie to yet another one of the Ron explanations that there was a balance sheet recession in Japan. That the reason there was no recovery was because households and companies were too indebted and so couldn't do anything. Well, households and companies actually were in the black for much of the recession period. So forget that idea. But that's a footnote. The main point is that if you go from the Japanese data to the more recent UK data, you suddenly see a spike in corporate savings here as well. Now that's only a spike, but it's a very large spike. And you can see that going back nearly 20, more than 20 years, we haven't seen anything like it. So what does it mean? How do we interpret this? Now, one way to interpret this is simply people were very uncertain. Companies were sitting on their money. They weren't going to decide what to do with their money to invest or not or to expand production or to pay workers until the uncertainty was resolved. And if that's the case, fine. The uncertainty will be resolved. That money will come back out. A second and more concerning explanation, which has some parallels to Japan, would be companies know the financial sector still isn't there for them. And they're worried that if they draw down their credit lines, they will never get them back. And so they hold on to capital, hold on to cash as a form of self-insurance against lack of access to financing. If that's the case, then that does hold out the prospect of something of a credit crunch, that a lot of this money won't be used. And then there's another argument for restructuring the UK financial system, which uh, some of you know I'm on record as saying wouldn't be a bad idea. And that would, of course, be consistent with the previous chart I showed you. The worst possible way of interpreting this, however, is that in contrast to everything I said, the UK did wake up with a bunch of left arms missing. That there was a supply shock, that there was a contraction in productive capacity, that in growth theory terms, K-star has dropped. The total amount of capital and investment that businesses think is appropriate for this economy is lower than what we've built up because we don't think it's going to be very productive. And if that's the case, and if contrary to everything I said about Japan and the general thrust of my remarks, the UK actually has suffered a real supply shock, then we're just in deep trouble. And then we're looking at lower growth and higher inflation from here out, and there's nothing monetary policy can do about it. Now, I actually think, and what we're pursuing in current research, is actually this is where openness comes to save Japan. I mean, excuse me, comes to save the UK, and lack of openness came to bite Japan. In the UK, leaving aside a few large banks, corporate governance is pretty good. Shareholders do not let companies sit on their money and keep it trapped there. They have to either do something useful with it or pay it out in dividends, or those companies get taken over. And in particular, corporations, if they see lack of productive opportunities to invest at home, will do foreign direct investment abroad. In Japan, a large number of people going back a long time have pointed out that the system is against shareholder rights, encourages companies to sit on cash, and discourages companies from investing abroad. 
And so money could get trapped there and then not come back out and not be productively used. And so throughout the last 20 years, Japan just has this bare uptick in how much outward FDI they're doing. Now the UK, I don't know the full story of this huge spike in 99, 2000. Some of the markets people at the bank have explained it's something to do with some mergers activity, whatever. It's obviously an outlier, just chop it off. But the bottom line is, you know, outward FDI, 5% of GDP from the UK, is actually one of the largest ratios of any country in the world. And it's spiking up now. And so this is the good news scenario. It is possible that what we're seeing there is accumulation of cash actually is accumulation of investments abroad, companies abroad. Because that shows up in the GDP accounting as cash, it doesn't show up as investment. It shows up as an asset on the company's balance sheet. And if that's the case, which I'd like to believe it is, then we got some good news finally in the Japan-UK comparison. So let me conclude. Japan was not Ron. It was not one thing and done. It was not one source and it was not doomed. There was room to respond and Japan actually had a lot of room and once the government of Japan responded, it recovered. And it wasn't flat forever. It was a series of recoveries that were aborted and they came back. And they came back using policies, no Rashomon here, they came back using policies that were textbook, that were old-fashioned, and they were able to get away with in many ways because Japan was a closed, old-fashioned economy. But that gives us some insight. Those two combined gives us some insight that we can think about what makes other countries more or less likely to have a demand shock and look like a demand shock instead of a supply shock, what makes them more or less able to use these kinds of policies. And when you do that kind of accounting, for the UK, the news isn't great. The external environment, the limits on fiscal policy, the financial structural problems all tend to suggest that we're not going to get the same kind of strong recovery Japan did. But the big ticket item that we responded with great macro policy, with great stimulus when we had to, that the economy is flexible and can reallocate, that there is pressure on corporates to do something useful with their money, suggests that the UK will not turn Japanese even in the stereotypical way, let alone the way I've spoken about here. The big remaining question to me, which also affects the outlook I have to think about as an MPC member, is what happens when the Phillips curve breaks down? What happens when deflation is so sticky for so long in Japan? What happens here in the UK when we seem to be getting inflation disproportionate to the amount of spare capacity we think there must be? That's a topic for research, but it's one we could really use the answer to right now. Thank you very much. Okay, we, we have around just to five minutes for questions. Um, uh, after which, though, you will be all welcome to join us for a reception upstairs in the senior dining room uh, where we can continue the, the conversation for a short while. Anyway, let me uh, throw it open uh, and uh, see how many questions we can, we can get in in the time available. Yeah. I would like to come back to the example of 1907 crash in the United States and the bubble and burst around the world from which we had a very strong recovery with no central bank and no Keynesian economics. Um, 
and so we're looking at a possible failure of, mar of, of an autonomous forces in Japan. And I would like to raise a counterfactual question. Suppose the yen dollar had been fixed at 120 or 130 in um, 1990 or 1991, and um, thereafter the uh, budget deficit had been held down at two, two or three percent of GDP. Would, is, it, is it not interesting to look, look at that counterfactual experiment and puzzle what, what would have happened in Japan? I, it's certainly interesting to pose it, but um, I'm not the right guy to pose it to, because to me that was a demonstrably bad idea. That's what happened in the Great Depression. Um, and that's what's failing right now in the Euro area. Um, it's failing in two senses. It's failing that if you stick a very tight monetary regime when you're in a volatile world economy, you get dislocations, you get problems. And it's failing in the sense that a very tight monetary commitment doesn't necessarily get you deterrence into fiscal uh, probity. <laughs> um, and we saw that repeatedly in the 19th century and early 20th century, that you had countries that were on the gold standard that had still ended up defaulting. Um, so it's a legitimate question, but and maybe this is my bit of Rashomon or my bias, but I think history shows us pretty clearly what the answer was. Uh, that kind of fixity doesn't really work. Just wait for the mic for one second. Thank you for the outstanding talk. Uh, very much appreciated your insights. Um, Given the, uh, the skyrocketing debt now in the Western economies, the yep. US, the UK, and Western Europe, have we not reached the end of the rope when it comes to fiscal stimulus? Um, because, I mean, I see the bond vigilantes, especially with respect to Greece now, coming alive. And isn't there a high risk of uh, an increase in interest rates as a result? Yeah, I, I, I apologize if I was unclear. I did try to say that to some degree during my talk. Um, I don't think we're at the absolute end of the road, and I think the end of the road differs for co different countries. You know, so Greece is obviously, you know, in Wally Coyote territory, you know, is out there running past the cliff in midair. Um, the U.S. is in roadrunner territory and has many, many miles of road left to go, although I'm, I wouldn't exaggerate that. And the U.K. is somewhere where we can see the end of the road approaching. Um, so yes, I, I think we have reached the limits of it. And that relates to the answer to this gentleman. I mean, it's, you know, the statement that all else equal, you want to be able to engage in fiscal stimulus when there's a problem, is really a statement that you have to be more careful to build up your resources and not squander them when times are good, because you want to have the spare capacity to do it. Another way of putting it, which I would argue for, and which Olivier Blanchard at the IMF has raised again, um, which I didn't talk about today, is you want to move a lot of fiscal things to what are called automatic stabilizers in so far as possible. So that they're, they're taking in revenue or costing less during good times and they're very aggressively spending more in bad times, but they're truly symmetrical and automatic, so it's not up to government officials to make up your mind about them. And if you're interested, I mean, there's a whole literature and stuff on that. But yeah, we are reaching the end of the road, but the UK, thankfully, seems to be aware, you know, paying attention to the signpost that says, caution, last exit, as opposed to certain other countries that may have said, 
I don't read that sign. Um, I mean, it remains to be seen, but I think that's where we are. One down the front here. Uh, Robert Wade, do you think that... You do you want to wait for the mic? And can we just wait for the mic in case some people at the back... I've, I've enjoyed your do work, you Professor Wade. Nice of you to come Thank tonight. Um, do you think that the uh, Monetary Policy Committee of the Bank of England should be targeting financial stability as a partly separate objective from inflation? In other words, should it be leaning against the wind? Uh, or do you think that uh, financial stability should be taken care of by, by some other of by some other organization? Um, let me let me answer that in two parts, and I don't mean to be a weasel. I'm, I'm being very sincere, but it may sound a little weaselly. Um, I genuinely don't think it matters much where the authority is located. I realize that that has been a very big issue with a lot of commentary here, also in the U.S. You know, should it be in the central bank? Should it not be in the central bank? Should it be tripartite? Should it be quadripartite? Should it be peptapartite? You know. Um, if you do it in the central bank, should there be a Chinese wall? If you have a committee in the central bank, I'm not making fun of you, I'm just trying to give a feel for it. You know, if you have a committee in the central bank, should it be the Monetary Policy Committee or should it be a separate Financial Stability Committee? Honestly, um, I don't think it matters that much. Well, I think what matters is two things. First, that it's much more about rules than versus discretion. You know, that is one of the big issues that started with inflation target. I mean, I don't mean rules or discretion started with inflation target. I apologize. One of the things that inflation targeting started with was the idea that monetary policy should be somewhat more constrained in its discretion than it was. And when I was writing on it with Bernanke and Michigan, that was our goal, was to partially constrain, not fully constrain, but partially constrain what the central bank could do. And to me, for a variety of reasons you can probably guess at, but I'm happy to talk about during the reception, the case for rules versus discretion is, if anything, infinitely stronger on the financial regulatory side, supervisory side, than on monetary policy. And so I would like to go for, on record saying, you know, big, dumb, stiff rules. You know, you can't do this, you can do this, you need this much money, and very little judgment involved. And secondly, you know, you, spe you spoke about leaning against the wind, which is one of the questions. You know, how do you follow about asset price bubbles? What should you do? Um, as I argued in a December speech, and as I argued in a previous paper, the, the, it takes more than a bubble to become Japan that I cited in my talk, I'm one of what's now an uh, embattled minority that says it, it's really completely a fool's errand to try to do it with monetary policy with interest rates. Um, not because I'm jealously trying to predict the central bank and not because I don't think I can discern a bubble, but because it just won't work. Just won't work. So I'd rather have a very aggressive um, regulatory apparatus. And I guess the final point, bringing it back to the thing I was just saying about automatic stabilizers, what I threw out for consideration in my December speech, which actually got picked up a bit in the press recently, is the idea that there should be some kind of automatic stabilizer, for example, on real estate taxes. So during boom periods, title tax, capital gains tax could be much higher, and during slack periods of housing markets, it could be much lower. And you could, we already have an apparatus in place that collects these kinds of taxes and, and notes. So it would be very easy to implement 
anyway, so I hope that's responsive to your question, but um, I, I just genuinely don't, I think it matters more the substance and how rules-based it is, and it matters less to me where it is. Does the governor agree with you? I have no idea. I'm sure he has an opinion. <laughs> okay. I, I think on that, on that, I think it, it's just about 8 o'clock, so we should, we should wind up. I should uh, thank Adam for a terrific lecture. Um, invite you all again for uh, a, a drink with us upstairs. Um, and uh, I'll say to the, our friends from the press, if they do want to talk to Adam, I know I'm doing Sally's job here, could, they will have to do it upstairs because I'm going to whisk right. him straight up there to the reception. Um, but Sally will doubtless let regulate access. Uh, anyway, um, thanks again, Adam. No, Terrific no. lecture. Let me, and I know, let me uh, thank you all again for being so patient. I realize I went a little long, especially on a hot Monday night. I really appreciate your attention, and thank you for the thank invitation.